Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome once again to A Biblical Frame, where we are looking at current events from a biblical and theological perspective. Today, we are going to be kind of tracing some subject matter that we've looked at before in terms of a focus on truth, uh, in terms of a focus on what happened during COVID. But we don't only want this to be a retrospective and repeating what we've done before. We want to look specifically today at what happened in journalism. So we have the very great pleasure of having some journalists with us today who are going to help us look at what did go on, what is going on in Canadian media today, and what should we as Christians be looking out for as we look into the future, as we are watching our screens, as we're perhaps going through our various sources of um, journalism. Before our guests introduce themselves, allow me though to read a little bit of a clip from a publication called The Biblical World. This comes from June 1909. The title is Theology and Yellow Journalism. Newspapers do shape public opinion, not, however, through their editorials. The man who writes the headlines is the real maker of public opinion. Editorial influence has retreated behind modern methods of casting large face type. Even the man who takes time to read the matter below the heading reads the heading first. It gives him his views on religion as well as on athletics. Belief in plenary inspiration, having fled the Bible, has fixed itself upon these brazen epitomes of news written by men who must attract attention or lose their jobs. And then, let me jump a little bit, he goes on to say, nobody then bothers with facts. This large-typed misrepresentation and prevarication becomes infectious. The public loses its conscience. And then at the end of the paper, we believe in the freedom of the press, but not in the present orgy of misinterpretation. The situation is too serious to admit of further neglect. Truth is too precious to be subject to the whims of men whose one aim in life is to attract attention. And then the word of hope. We believe that truth, though crushed to the earth, will rise again. And this is our hope and why we undertake. My name is Ed Gerber, and I'm happy to host you today. And uh, some of our regulars will introduce ourselves and then our guests for today. My name is Jens Zimmerman, Professor of Theology at Regent College, UBC in Vancouver, Canada. I'm Ivan De Silva. I am a retired detective from the Vancouver Police and also an instructor in Religious Studies and the Bible at Trinity Western University and Pacific Life Bible College. My name is Jeff Sandus. I am a freelance reporter for the Epic Times. I'm David Cayley. Um, I spent, um, I guess, almost my entire working life at CBC Radio, from which I retired in 2012. Glad to be with you. And I'm Lee Harding. I'm a freelance contributor to the Epoch Times and the Western Standard. And I'm also a policy fellow for the Frontier Center for Public Policy. And so I do commentaries for them that often make their way into mainstream and into small town newspapers. Thank you. Thank you all for coming. We're delighted to have you. I think a really great place for us to be in might be just for um, each of you to share a little bit of your experience during COVID. Um, we had wide variety of experiences. I know in the church, as I was pastoring a church, people were getting their information from different sources. But it'd be fascinating to hear a journalist's perspective on what you witnessed, what was the quality of journalism, what on earth was going on. So, um, 
yeah, Jeff, if you want to start, then you guys can jump in as you will. But I'd just love to hear kind of your experience on the ground of this thing. That's a, a question that I'm a little bit different because I don't do this full time. Although my personal experience, I ended up just me and my family getting a greater friend network through this, despite the sort of ostracism that kind of happened in our society. But from a journalism point of view, I just seem to recall there was just a lot of confusion initially in how this issue was approached. But once government began getting more involved, the coverage of this issue became a lot more polarized. And I know with Epic Times, they were getting all of their contributors, they were all filing stories on COVID. So our editor was always telling me, I don't want you to give me any story ideas or pitches on COVID. Like, so I had to kind of steer away from most of those types of stories myself. Yeah, that's what I recall. I wrote throughout the pandemic as well. It was... Uh, there was probably more latitude for the outlets that I had than in some others, especially with the Western Standard. The Western Standard had a bent that was very much towards freedom. And so criticism of the lockdowns, uh, of vaccine mandates, was something there was a wide open door for. And also talking to those who had those opinions and perspectives. Uh, with Epoch Times, I did do a few stories on more, I guess, ancillary aspects of it where we would talk to people who, let's say, uh, there's mental health issues going on because of these lockdowns and uh, isolation that's going on in seniors' care homes and families. And so there was probably uh, more space, I think, in the alternative press than in the mainstream press to talk about some things. There were also some barriers, and there are places even in the alternative press that depending on the editor's courage and perspective, you maybe may or may not be able to go. I know I wanted to do an article uh, that uh, cited Michael Yaden for the Frontier Center, and at that time they were not very high on Michael Yaden or on Robert F. Kennedy Jr. or mm -hmm. any of those other sorts of voices. Um, they were, however, recognizing through some other ones that probably this COVID thing was quite overhyped as far as its threat from the start and weren't real big fans of the measures either. And uh, I think because uh, some of the early voices were castigated uh, as being people that we couldn't listen to, um, if someone was to more thoughtfully look at what some of those people were saying, you could discover they were quite reasonable and uh, also eminent in their field. So uh, there was a bit of an evolution, I think, to be open to some more of that. Um, other things that I found were, uh, for example, I wanted to do a column on how the vaccine was poorly tested and risky, and I was citing medical sources. That was something that I couldn't get into Western Standard because I'm not a doctor. And so if, if I was doing a news article where I was quoting a doctor, that would have been okay. But to cite them as an opinion piece where I'm basically telling you the opinion, well, you're not a doctor to give a medical opinion, so let's not do it. So there were certain places where you could and couldn't go, and that was my experience. Hmm. I would say for myself uh, that I wasn't a working journalist and hadn't been for uh, eight years when the pandemic began, and but I was a 
keen observer of media, and I would say that I was astonished hmm. uh, at what happened, um, beginning with a headline in the National Post, which took up most of the top of the front page saying panic, <laughs> as if it were an instruction to the public, wow. rather than it wasn't reporting anything. There was no reason to panic. Nobody knew anything. Uh, and as I read, this is not what I thought that day, but what I reconstructed was that I, I came to recognize that moment in March 2020 as similar to 9-11, similar to what the beginnings of what Noam Chomsky called the reconstruction of imperial ideology following the end of the Vietnam debacle. One might even go farther back and cite other events into which humans sleepwalked, like the beginning of the First World War. The image of sleepwalking comes from an historian called Christopher Clark. I was astonished, as I said, that, a, and again, this is a reconstruction, that a, a revolution was affected overnight in public health philosophy yeah. without ever anyone ever mentioning uh, that such a thing had occurred. It, the new rationality seemed to fall from the sky, total, complete, there it was. Obviously, Canadian society should be locked down and as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. The term lockdown had three months before that been unthinkable in public health terms. And to the general public was a, a, something that occurred in prisons and laterally sometimes in schools where there had been a shooting or something. Suddenly, all right-thinking people were in favor of it. So something there's something very interesting and mysterious as well as disturbing there. How does such a thing occur? And what role does journalism play in it? So those were the questions that began to form in, mm -hmm. in March of 2020. Yeah, that's really good. I, I remember just in terms of some of the nomenclature, the language that seemed prepackaged and ready to go, which immediately struck me as curious, was that we need to social distance. And I remember saying to a group of people, please, for God's sake, do not social distance. Right now, we need each other more than ever. Um, it was questionable whether physical distancing was going to help or do anything in the long term, and a lot of us were asking that from the very beginning. But this concept that we would social distance, why would we do that, and what was beneath the language? I think before we get more into some of the weeds here on what went on, Ivan has Ivan wants to kind of frame this theologically for us. So, Ivan, if you're ready to do that, it would be great for you to share some thoughts that you had prior to uh, prior getting together today. Thanks, Ed. Yes, uh, just to frame this um, biblically, the, one of the things that the Bible talks about uh, over and over again is that when it comes to matters of justice, especially community justice, um, uh, where life and other uh, serious things hang in the balance, the a situation or an event or an incident must be established by a multiplicity of witnesses, not just by one. For example, in Deuteronomy, uh, let me just quote a few scriptures from the Old and the New Testament. Uh, these are specifically, because the Bible being the book that it is, geared towards the, um, the community of God and things to do with 
things to do with the, um, the faith. But um, Deuteronomy 19.15, this is what it says, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrongdoing in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. Uh, similarly, our Lord himself in Matthew 18.16 states, but if he does not listen, this is somebody who is uh, acting unbecomingly in the community, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And then uh, jumping to the epistles to the Apostle Paul, he says in 2 Corinthians 13 uh, verses 1 to 2, this is the third time I am coming to you. Every charge must be established on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Paul again instructing his young protege Timothy on how to conduct himself in the church, writes in 1 Timothy 5.19, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So while these, um, while these directions are specifically uh, geared towards incidences and situations related to the church, I do think they can be applied uh, wider to the body politic as well, where when you have a really serious thing happening, whatever it is, in the community, and, um, and people are concerned about it, and it is going to require some serious measures by the authorities in order to deal with it, it is important to have a multiplicity of witnesses. And uh, what I experienced during the uh, lockdowns and the, the whole handling of the COVID crisis in Canada and in British Columbia was the stifling of any other witnesses. Uh, any other testimony, and uh, and the government only allowing one voice, one narrative, one story to be put forth. And of course, the government re uh, relies on the media to do this, and um, and so uses the media as their megaphone to get the get the news out to the public. And it absolutely surprised me how the media seemed to fall in line and tout the what the government was saying. So that is the angle I, 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 I wish we could um, explore today. Uh, and so in relation to that, I've formulated a few questions. And um, to get us started, I think it'll be good if we could begin rather broadly, and I'll now hand it over to our journalists in here. And that is, uh, you guys are all, or have at one point been involved with the press, or presently are. What do we mean by the press? Uh, what is the press? What do we mean by that? So that our listeners will get a get an idea of what the press is, what role it plays in a democratic society, uh, and then maybe even getting to how a newsroom works and how stories are picked. Lee talked a little bit about that already. <clears throat> But yes, can we start with this? Can we start with the, what is the definition of the press? And then we heard this other term as well uh, throughout this whole crisis, and that is the legacy media. Uh, what is that? What is the legacy media? And, um, and so maybe I'll just start with that and throw it out to, to you guys and to anybody else to chime in on that. The press, what is it? David, why don't you start? Because you, you began in this industry before Lee and I did. Well, I, I, I'm not sure I can offer a useful de definition of the press. I, I, I think, uh, so I'll try and speak more concretely. 
um, I, I became convinced. I mentioned um, a phrase from Noam Chomsky uh, and a book that he and Edward Herman did in the late 1970s called The Political Economy of Human Rights, a two-volume work. It was Chomsky who convinced me that there is possible that you can have uh, it became to be called Chomsky's propaganda model, but essentially that boundaries to acceptable discourse can be established without overt coercion, that the press, the media generally uh, operate within prescribed boundaries. So there's the discourse is restricted. I accepted that, and I, I think I could have argued for the point, but I had never seen anything like what became evident in March 2020. And I'll I'll give a couple of concrete examples. These were things I became aware of later. On the 20th of March 1920, uh, the CBC News CBC News World, the All News Network, uh, interviewed Dr. Richard Chabas, who had been for 10 years the Chief Medical Officer of Health in Ontario uh, and had been a frequent guest on the CBC, had been present during the first SARS crisis where he was head of staff at the hospital where it mainly occurred. There was every reason to listen to Dr. Chabas as an elder, as a member of the public health establishment, um, he raised some questions in this interview on um, the wisdom of lockdowns, for example. And that interview disappeared from the CBC the same day it was published. It was unpublished in the in the afternoon. And uh, Richard Chavis himself obtained the emails that internally at the CBC, in which the head of the of news uh, for the CBC News Network instructed his staff that the, Dr. Chavis was never to be interviewed again, and having such people on was tantamount to having a climate change denier. That was the expression in the email on the air. Chavis assembled this evidence, sent it to the CBC ombudsman. It was acknowledged and never acted on. So later in the summer, um, a whole galaxy of former public health professionals, including Dr. Joel Kettner, who had been Chief Medical Officer of Health in Manitoba, three former Canadian heads, a bunch of former deans of medicine, released a statement called a balance, an open letter to the prime minister calling for a balanced approach. That was their expression, a balanced approach to the pandemic. In other words, regard for the entire public health rather than maniacal obsession with this one disease vector at all costs. Yeah, yeah. That letter, um, to my knowledge, was never publicized anywhere in Canada. It was I can't find that it was on the CBC. It was never in the Globe and Mail or the National Post. It was just ignored. So this is is to me, is jaw, once jaw drops, right? That the entire, you know, a representative group of the former public health establishment are suddenly disqualified from even speaking. 
So I have to see this as an an epoch, Mm. uh, a new and much more overt form of censorship seems to be in place, although one you can find the letter saying don't have Shabus on. He's a climate, he's the equivalent of a climate change denier. But generally it seemed to operate uh by a kind of consensus. Um but the CBC was was effectively censored. One opinion was allowed throughout the pandemic. Um Rodney um Palmer, who testified for the National Citizens Inquiry, established to my satisfaction that every expert consulted by the CBC during the pandemic was, in fact, receiving funds from a federal program called Science Up First, without exception. If you were if you were called upon by the CBC by an expert, you were in the you were being paid by Science up first, this federal program to make sure we all respect science. Uh, So um, Mariana Kloak, and then I'll shut up, uh, who was in the CBC uh, Winnipeg newsroom and was a a veteran of many decades, uh, she she also testified to the National Citizens Inquiry and to the earlier inquiry that was assembled by the Canadian COVID Care Alliance. But she had called me before that, I mean, she was uh, she could not get a single story approved about who was protesting, whether it was vaccine damage, whatever she proposed that was outside the narrative was was stopped. She couldn't do it. And she eventually left the CBC. She also gave testimony. So this glaring this is the glaring issue in our public life, mm. as far as I'm concerned. There, uh, there was one acceptable don't story. Don't invite me to dinner parties anymore because yes. I won't shut up about it. But so you know this this whatever the press in general is, uh, and whatever the legacy media in general is, but presumably um, the national, you know, the the Globe and Mail, the CBC, the major newspapers in other markets constitute. Uh, this uh, was effectively limited to one story throughout. That's right. And that's what we have to face. David, I have, I have one question for you. Um, and I don't want like answer briefly if you can, so we get a chance to listen to. Yes, I don't want to. Yet. But um, and I, uh, I just, Noam Chomsky, like other uh, often leftist critics of Leviathan, himself became like surrender to that narrative and i've i've been puzzled why that is jürgen habermas in germany a long time uh, critic of these kind of things also uh succumbed to that narrative so on the one hand i could see how paid journalists who are under the censorship uh, of an institution like the cbc would do that i don't understand fully how these kind of maverick critics of these kind of things also succumbed. Like, how does that work? Because my whole profession, the academy, more or less completely failed in that regard, as as far as I can see. Well, I, I've puzzled long and hard about this. And, I mean, it wasn't just Chomsky. I mean, the entire... I, I, I produced for the CBC a, 
a series of 24 broadcasts, believe it or not, uh, called How to Think About Science, mm. which argued, this was around 2007, 2008, that a new image of science had emerged, thanks to the work of a variety of historians and philosophers of science who had created a more credible, a more accurate, a more historically situated image of science than the old idealization. Uh, but I would say not one of them, uh, to my knowledge, spoke. So, uh, so it wasn't just Chomsky that was silent. I think the plague archetype is one explanation. The plague archetype is very powerful and effective. I think the second has to be the fear of the enemy, right? The, uh, yeah. So we're four years after Trump, four years after Brexit, and and deeply afraid of this populist surge from the right. Oh, that's and, incisive. And that made everybody fall in line. Wow. Right? Because they were so relieved that the state was reasserting itself, mutual care was going to be our every thought. Uh, finally, these... The yobos and know nothings would would be silenced, right? Mm -hmm. Because their, their misinformation, there would be an end to their misinformation. That everyone was so frightened, in other words, mm. so alarmed that that they retrenched on this story, uh, almost without exception. Mm -hmm. That's helpful. That's the best I can do shortly. Well, yeah, and yeah, and the power of being labeled a conspiracy theorist or anything of that nature. Now, let I want to hear from other um, journalists here, but just one uh, one clarification. You said 1920. I think you meant March 2020 about that oh, doctor. Yeah. Yes, I'm slightly dyslexic. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was thinking historically, I'm like, this is really fascinating. SARS was way back. But anyways, it was 2020, just yeah, for our no, listeners. No. Yes, indeed. Okay, great. Well, to touch on the original question, I would say that legacy media is the established corporate print, radio, and TV outlets that today are extending a lot of their work through online, um, an online presence, let's put it that way. But they're sort of the old school, we might say, of the press, and um, one that in more recent criticisms seems to be targeted by some people as being... Uh, maybe part of the problem. And I do find it really interesting listening to David talk about this because I believe that these institutions did have a higher standard at one time and somehow that has gone away. Uh, I am interested in looking at the why that this happens mm -hmm. and the how. I think that there's some factors here that are opaque to us. And one of the things that we can notice is that it seems like if you get certain gatekeepers in the right place, as Pierre Polyev likes to call them, the gatekeepers, whoever these gatekeepers are in whatever realms they are. If you get the right ones in the right place at the right time and you have the right levers of psychology and interests and money used upon them, the rest can just follow. Now, you'll always lose a few people on the fringes, but they have an answer for that now. You just sort of get deplatformed or you get shadow banned or you get your message suppressed so that uh, a certain narrative prevails. And one of the reasons that this happened with the CBC, the BBC, and to some extent the Wall Street Journal, they were all at meetings for the Trusted News Initiative, where yes. they said, we're going to fight disinformation. Yes. 
And so this was all set up shortly before the pandemic. And in March of 2020, the CBC said as part of the execution of this, we are going to go with the authorities, with those sources. Now, the problem with going with authorities and saying all the non-authority voices are not good is, well, for starters, it resembles very much some fascist and communist and other authoritarian sort of systems that we do not want to emulate. But the other problem is it, it excludes the idea that these authorities are ever wrong. And what you should have in a free society is the ability to challenge that. And in the discussion, although we won't have complete agreement, there will at least be a forum where there's a breadth of ideas and where people are given the opportunity to hear about and consider the other side. When you go to this model, you don't have that anymore. Mm -hmm. And that should be a very deep concern. And what makes this even worse is that the polls of, for example, U.S. universities, about 10 years ago, they started, there was a shift that was beginning to happen where people did not value free speech. Once you stop valuing that, it enabled cancel culture, where if someone is saying such and such, well, they should not even be allowed to say such things. And so we're going to cancel them. So there wasn't this idea that one's ideas could withstand any kind of scrutiny because they were that good. No, there's just some things that, uh, like uh, hearing the voice of a heretic, you just cover your ears and scream and call for them to be stoned. Yeah. And so there's yeah. a little bit of that going on, I think. Absolutely. I guess my thought is the changing face of the newsroom is completely different from when I first started, which was 35 years ago, where you kind of showed up to work and you'd have an editor that would dispatch your story and you'd have all day to kind of get your research and your interviews together and put it, put it in. But now I'm writing stories from St. John's, Newfoundland out here in Vancouver. And, you know, it's kind of just a faceless network of people that are putting together a media outlet. And today, in touching on what Lee's talking about, is the screaming from people who rely on freedom of speech is silent because a lot of our press is advocating for voices to be suppressed. And to ask the question why, I've definitely tried to think about this without coming to a conclusion, but certainly the way the internet has evolved in helping create other, well, there's so much news, if we put that in quotation marks, there's so much news that as a consumer we can consume. One of the things that they have all effectively done, if they're going to survive, is they find their demographic and they keep feeding them the red meat that they want. And they can tell because of how many times people click on a story or whatever. So, you know, let's say Fox News 15 years ago, their front page, I remember on their website would have, you know, kind of the, the biggest, you know, couple news stories. Then there'd be a couple international stories, uh, you know, a sports story, a, a culture story, and so on. But now it's just all narrowed down to, I guess, Donald Trump type stories. And those are the ones that I guess we're all migrating toward. And so we're part of the problem in going to the the stuff that 
we want to, I guess, hear or read and the media outlets are just continue to feed that to us. And so the culture of the press is now being dictated on what is going to generate the revenue, which is by saying, hey, this story gets this many clicks, they can go to an advertiser and end up saying, this is why we're charging you this and you should be advertising with us. I'm still in touch with a lot of the people I went to school with 35 years ago. And those that have been in the industry full time from when we finished school to now, essentially they all say the same thing. Quality of content does not matter. It's how many people will view the story so essentially the headline is what is the most important feature for a story now. So that's sort of what I can determine has changed from our press. And back then, 30 years ago, we did not look at it that way. We would have, I was in a community newspaper in Surrey. There was two community newspapers. And if the other one ended up getting the story that we also should have gotten, it was embarrassing. But now it, that doesn't matter because we have a different demographic that only wants to hear sort of the certain types of stories that just get narrowly focused on. And so that's why you go to Fox News and you aren't, you're not going to find the you know, the feel good culture story or the sports story so much unless it has some attribute that they're going to be able to go to advertisers and say, you know what? you should advertise for us because this is how many clicks we're getting for that story. So I guess that would be what I would say. And by the way, uh, legacy media, I think is what Lee was sort of saying is just the traditional media that we always kind of are aware of and mainstream media is more the more, the more popular ones. And now we're getting the different definitions for the ones that have a smaller scale, whether they're podcasts or, um, you know, smaller website, type things as alternative or independent media. Well, let me, let me, um, <clears throat> let me follow up with this question. Um, it appears that uh, wh from what you're saying in the modern, <clears throat> in the modern, uh, in modern journalism, there really isn't much diversity, <clears throat> excuse me, of, um, uh, representation as well, and I don't mean uh, ethnic or uh, gender diversity. I mean intellectual diversity. Um, is 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 that a problem when you have journal journalists who are all thinking and um, feeling and writing uh, in the same way, and nobody is challenging them, or is it important to have diversity in amongst journalists? Can I, can I just expand on that question? I think that's a really good question. So let me just give you, for this expansion, a brief example from a faculty meeting uh, where we met with our communications officer at our institution. I gave a five-minute spiel on why we should challenge the COVID narrative and uh, put in my favorite theologian, Bonhoeffer, because he protested you know, certain conditions uh, under the Third Reich. And I met with a completely aghast communications officer who said, Jens, what you're doing is you're teaching our students by challenging the COVID narrative to distrust authorities. And if we do that, where, where will we end up? If we, and I, I almost fell off my little uh, professorial chair because I thought that was the whole point of, of the academy to basically you know, be slightly suspicious of whatever authorities tell you. I mean, I was in the diapers in the 60s, but I, mean, I thought that was sort of the basic vibe that came out of the, the, that sort of era, right? That you don't trust authorities initially because you know they're... Uh, there's certain interests, there's a bureaucratic structure and dynamic that is self-affirming and so on. So 
so to expand on your question, Ivan, is 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 this kind of is has there been a shift like in uh, in generational thinking towards conformity? Is that part of the why, or is that is that do you think that's nonsense? Can I jump in here? Please yeah. do. Uh, I I think this is this is profoundly important, um, and I, I think you you could not exaggerate the the present crisis of authority, uh, and and I think the 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 extent. I think it's hard to take seriously the nature of this media revolution, right? I think it's probably not comparable to anything since the invention of the printing press. Probably our period would bear best bear comparison, not that people remember it very much, but to the period of the Reformation and and to the the panic that was created by the printing press. I think we're in a profound crisis of authority and panic about authority, and properly so in some ways, in the sense that uh, everyone has a voice, but the way it plays out is, is, I think Jeff talked about it, everyone in little self-sealing communities, uh, and therefore uh, a crisis of order. I think this to go back to the question about Chomsky, Jens, is probably why a lot of people who you would have expected a critical response from jumped into line is because the fear of 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 out of control disorder is is so profound, um, and in the face of such a thing, the reactionary response is the more comfortable one. The, what Lee mentioned, the Trusted News Initiative, for example. Let's get back to the good old days, right? When people trusted authority, when the news was authoritative. Um, let's get back to science, right? When some mythical time when everyone believed scientists and the, the man in the white coat said it, it was good. And now there's all these people out there who are anti-science, who are climate change deniers, who are this, who are that, right? It's it's very hard to see how to go ahead in 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 the face of this media revolution and very easy to see how one might go back to a golden age so almost all the discourse i encounter is in that sense reactionary mm. it wants to get over this by getting back to some good old days mm. and i think that's wrong um but it's 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 hard for you know uh, the cbc for example take my uh, the place where i spent a lot of my life would have to become a completely new thing mm. if it wanted to reconstruct the public uh, sphere on new terms it would have to face a lot of things about itself that it doesn't want to face uh, and so, so David, it's, it's Jeff very, here. David, are very, you, we're are in you, a very complicated situation. David, are you saying that the current structure of how media works is, is biased? It's unprofessional. It's kind of lost that, uh, that reputation maybe that, uh, we, we were there to inform. Well, I mean, the, 
the example for me that overwhelmingly presents itself is when, I mean, when the trucker convoy presented itself, I mean, a very impressive phenomenon. Mm -hmm. People getting these big rigs running in the winter, putting their livelihoods on the line, people assembling on the bridges, anybody paying attention, I think, and with an open mind would see an incipient public, right? An emergent, maybe an insurgent public. Well, what would the public broadcaster do in such circumstances? Wouldn't it interrogate that phenomenon? Wouldn't it enter into dialogue with it? Wouldn't it? Well, no. These were enemies of the state, and the CBC had nothing to do with them. When the when they present when they did present an hour on the fifth estate, it was effectively rigged. It was just it was all about security and this and that and the other. There was never never any interrogation of what this phenomenon meant or what had stirred the people up to this extent. So yes, I think the CBC, what the CBC ought to be, and what even by a, an interpretation of the law that empowers it is that it ought to be a public forum where these kinds of opinions can express themselves and and it isn't that anymore yeah. uh, I, it is i mean you know if what pierre polyev says is effectively true it's the, it's the state broadcaster so there's uh, there's a theologian called Walter Wink, just to bring this back to a little bit of the theology side of things. Uh, Walter Wink does a full-scale study of the New Testament in terms of demonology. And he, he doesn't want to look at the ontological side of it, whether or not there are demons who have their own autonomous being in existence. He looks at it from an institutional perspective, and he says that an institution can become demonic when it loses its vocation, its proper God-ordained vocation in the world. And one of the things that I've heard I've heard Jeff saying, and also I think, David, I've heard you saying, is that there is a sense today in which media, for whatever plethora of reasons, has lost its vocation. It's not exactly sure what it's there for anymore. And that's, I do you think that's true? It doesn't understand what it's there for, or it's not doing what it ought to be there for? Um, and then the other question was, you know, some of us feel that in the absence of a vocation or not really knowing what it's doing, that that there was a puppeteer. How is it possible that there was one answer for everything? How is it possible that all the mainline um, news legacy media was giving the same answers, censoring the same sort of people, deplatforming, shadow banning the same sort of people. It made a lot of us awfully suspicious that there must be a bigger narrative underneath the narrative. There's a story under the story. What is it? I'll just come in here and be quick to the first point there is I think the media knows exactly what it's doing. And again, talking to the people I went to school with so many years ago, they're and even our editor, Lee, the schools are producing activists. They're not producing journalists. People are getting into this industry because they feel, I guess, a calling to change society or something. Right. But I'm saying they've lost their true calling. What they're supposed to be doing is actually um, bringing forth the issues of the day, well, of holding course. a forum for that's debate. What the press was always designed right. to be, or at least that's what we grew up with. But today's press 
they're I'm arguing they see a a, a calling to I don't know change right. society like yeah. it's, uh, it's a new their activism is <laughs> it's not journalism it's activism. Mm. Lee, well, I, I, I mean, a big, uh, a, I'm a big uh, fan of Walter Wink, and okay, so okay. I'm glad you brought him into the conversation. But yes, my answer in short would be, absolutely, it's lost its vocation. Mm-hmm. And even though I've expressed suspicion of narratives about the good old days, I wouldn't hesitate to say it's lost its vocation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What's the solution then? Like, how do you think? Uh, have you been working on this? Like, how do you think the uh, we can find or the media can find its way back um, to its vocation? Well, I, do you want to bring Lee in here and now that he's unfrozen? Yeah, sure. Uh, if I'm allowed, I did want to touch on something David said earlier. I remember watching. So CBC, best to my knowledge, was never talking to the protesters live at the convoy until the day came they were all going to get taken out and i remember hannah thibodeau was talking live and there was a protester who tried to get in and say some things and instead of talking to her she just completely ignored her and said well this is just someone who wants to be on tv yes (laughs) well why hadn't she been on tv for the last month why didn't you talk to her before why aren't you talking to her now this is her point Uh, So we saw a lot of things. If I could read something, this is from Edward Bernays' book, Propaganda, 1928. He says, sometimes the effect on the public is created by a professional propagandist, sometimes by an amateur deputed for the job. The important thing is that it is universal and continuous. And in its sum total, it is regimenting the public mind every bit as much as an army regiments the bodies of its soldiers. So vasts are the number of minds which can be regimented, and so tenacious are they, when regimented, that a group at times offers an irresistible pressure before which legislators, editors, and teachers are helpless. The group will cling to its stereotype, as Walter Lippmann calls it, making of those supposedly powerful beings the leaders of public opinion mere bits of driftwood in the surf. So what I would offer to you is that what has happened is that the media... To some extent, even in 1928, when this was written, was um, an echo of propaganda. But I think that the powers have intensified and some of the the uh, gatekeepers or the coercion around it has intensified. And so that's part of why we're seeing this singular narrative that is emerging is because we no longer value the openness. And so how can we reclaim journalism? basically by people stepping forward and telling the stories that are not being told. There's just a tremendous amount of opportunity there. In talking about the National Citizens Inquiry, I mean, what a great story. Well, no one else is doing it. It's wide open. You want to write about it? You can. So thankfully, we have those kinds of venues there. The problem is that they don't have the reach And so we need to promote those venues and uh, the people that are doing them really need to do a good job of promotion for their own sake and for the sake of our society. Because uh, when you have something that's rotting, uh, something that's healthy is going to grow and get better. And so out of the carcass of legacy media, we can have some new growth. 
Is there a role that the public can play in holding the media <clears throat> accountable? Um, you know, in policing, when I was in policing, we always had this group that was there to police the police. Uh, is there any such thing with journalism and journalists um, th that keep them accountable or call them back to their to first principles and their original vision? Or I mean, I, is there I not? think that's a, there's, the answer to that's pretty complicated, but I think the the Globe and Mail is accountable uh, because it's it's accountable to readers who share its mind. And that's who it writes for, and that's who it's made for, right? The New York Times, you could say the same. Um, they're, they're, so um, I don't think people of different opinion can hold those things accountable. When you have a public broadcaster like the CBC, then you, you've got a, a different kind of a question, right? But I would argue that the CBC in its first era, let's say up to the 1960s, had a, the image of a church was often used by people describing that era, but certainly it was an ethos of public service. And, and, and then it was gradually replaced by a kind of populist understanding, uh, which was more of the activist bent that Jeff mentioned, right? That the, the CBC radio, let's say, would function as a kind of tribune of the people. It would be, it would, it would bring you justice, happiness, news, vindication. It was very much, a, and I, I would argue that that era is over and it now has to understand, and this brings me to your uh, term, Ivan, the public, that there is no public. There are a variety of publics that are uh, dangerously at odds with one another. And the proper role of the CBC now ought to be to reconstruct a public sphere in which those, in which peace can be made, in which people can begin to talk to one another, begin to understand one another on the basis that each has a right to be heard. Right, that the that the woman who just wants to be on television, unlike Hannah Thibodeau, who's on television, you know, that we have to that this, that that is what I would propose. Now, I don't see any evidence that this is that there's a groundswell in favor of this, or that it's even being discussed. But I, that's what I think has to happen: is that the and the CBC. I mean, at least. Is, is a creature of the Canadian state empowered by law to do this very thing. Uh, it, it isn't like the Globe and Mail uh, selling newspapers to people who share the same opinion and will therefore buy the newspaper. End of sermon. Excellent. I, I love it. And Lee, I love the fact that you brought up a book on propaganda. I myself have been rereading portions of Jacques Ellul's book on propaganda. And one of, I think, the important, again, theological points that he makes, or at least an anthropological point that becomes quickly theological in our day, is that um, people are susceptible to propaganda and whatever the mass news media will spin when it loses a sense of value or when it becomes fundamentally nihilistic. And he's got this great quote here. 
um, that I'll read for a second. He says, an analysis of propaganda therefore shows that it succeeds primarily because it corresponds exactly to the need of the masses. And that was David's point before as well. There's this need. We're having a crisis of authority. He says, let us remember just two aspects of this, the need for explanations and the need for values, which both spring largely, though not entirely, from the promulgation of news. And a little, a couple pages earlier had just made the point that the average person works eight hours a day, might commute two hours a day, and then they sit down by the telly and fundamentally have a news that is geared toward entertaining them and keeping their attention rather than giving them a rounded picture of what's actually going on. And so there is kind of this um, joint you know, dance of the consumer on the one hand and the news on the other and the need of the consumer and uh, the need of the advertiser, as it were, to give them what they want in order to keep their views. So it's kind of a, it's a conundrum that we find ourselves in, I think. But the crisis of meaning, Alola is arguing, is at the center of it. So uh, you spurred to remind me of something I wrote a long time ago, and I referenced in this uh, article I wrote about uh, the, what's his name here? Charles Duhigg, he wrote a, a book called The Power of Habit. And uh, among the things he had mentioned is, you know, there's sort of a cookie cutter formula for writing hit songs, but they wouldn't become hits until they were buttressed by other hit songs at the time so that they can kind of oh, wow. climb a, a stepladder. And I remember, because I, st- I don't pay attention to virtually any media or news anymore in Canada <clears throat> or U.S. at all, but on TV... Uh, we must have been watching something and then the CTV news came on and I was kind of puzzled by it. And so I went back and I referenced it and it was October 28th, uh, October 28th, 2018. And without giving you all of the, the, the progress here, but they had, I think it was nine stories before the first commercial break and eight of them were referenced to Donald Trump, even though they weren't like necessarily Trump (laughs) stories. And, what I saw they were doing there is they would take every story and try to find some, you know, villainous portion to it and then put Trump in there. And that included like Canadian stories. And this is a Canadian network. I mean, Trudeau is not going to be eight of the top nine stories on any newscast in America, but that would be one of the examples that, uh, our media is doing now is that they're they're buttressing their stories in a format so we keep getting reinforced uh toward these talking points what we used to do in newspapers is you'd have an article on whatever it could be right let's say the you know a particular sports player on your local team and then in on the same page you would have maybe uh sort of a sidebar story that would be related to that. So like somebody's that your best player is injured, for example, and then you have a sidebar story on this new technique to sort of rehabilitate an athlete. And that was always good to help kind of, you know, give some diversity on the page. Uh, But what we're having now is, you know, the talking points established and now it's all like black and white, good or bad. And we don't incorporate different, opinions into an article anymore and certainly not on television and so this is one of the things i think propaganda 
except in this case here, I'm saying the power of habit, we're getting reinforced of the talking point because it's getting buttressed with other similar talking points. Mm. And it's at a degree it never used to be. So what is the risk? Uh, I wanted to, sorry, just touch on that uh, question that was done earlier that we really haven't talked about. Who keeps the media accountable? And this was a question that Solzhenitsyn also had. Who, Who elects the media and who keeps them accountable? I think that one of the best ways that it's done right now is by some of these online commentators, whether it's um, even Mark Dice. I mean, you may not think that his that this is a high-minded kind of critique, and maybe it isn't, but it's a bit like Elijah on Mount Carmel saying, hey, where's your God? Oh, maybe he's going to the bathroom. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he doesn't seem to be doing anything for you right now. He's calling them out. Mm. And so that counter voice with humor and satire, this sort of thing, I think is also very helpful. So it may not be uh, an intellectual kind of dispassionate sort of thing, but I think that is one of the ways that we can um, kind of poke at what's going on out there. The Babylon Bee is good in that area. Yeah, maybe True. I, I want to take this back to a central point that we all have talked about a little bit, um, and we're, th- we're concerned about the church, right? So one of the things that just puzzled me so, uh, Jeff, you just talked about this. So, what about the more prophetic voices of of pastors and their understanding that they don't need to conform to the government? Um, their understanding that that the church also has an um, like an inherent political role because it is part of of this world, right? It is it is supposed to reflect the new humanity. It is supposed to be intrinsically showing forth what it means to be human and therefore interested in relationality, interested in structures that further the human and so on. And yet the church seems to have capitulated uh, to the same kind of thirst for authority, for some kind of a fear uh, of things going to hell otherwise uh, that David referred to earlier. And it just really puzzles me to no end how how the church does not take its authority from the government at all, but from a completely different domain, how, how we've also fallen into this craving for, for authority. And I'm, I'm wondering if part of this, and this is maybe an appeal to David here, has to do with this move that you know, Ivan Illich talks about from a convivial society to a disabled society through you know, professions and the media could be one of these professions that has taken over public views, has taken over public opinion, that shapes public opinion, and that we've evacuated ourselves of the ability to actually form opinion, to follow our common sense. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, these kind of things, they all seem to play together, it seems to me, in driving us, if that is true, toward this sort of craving for an authority rather than forming our own opinions. And certainly within the church, I mean, why would the church have to follow government instructions if they're based on a lie? For what fear? And, uh, you know, I mean, and theologically, to me, some of this certainly is part of uh, an inherent pietism that is being pursued, right? I mean, it's it's the uplifting of your soul, your relationship with Jesus, um, maybe social justice on the side, uh, but there is there is no intrinsic, integral sense of how your faith uh, is to affect all of life, you know, um, the civic structures of life, uh, you know, so back to an inherent kind of civic responsibility uh, that is part of us. We seem to have completely given that up. So I know I'm kind of rambling, but I'm wondering how, 
No, not at all. <laughs> how you know how this hangs together? Like how what drives us Christian and non-Christians to this, to this um, giving up our our you know our ability to to come to an opinion ourselves? Like is it what is it? Is it overload of information? Is it exhaustion? Is it lack of education? Like are we just being emptied all the time uh, in a kind of non-formation? I I'm just wondering what that, what's at the root of this. Well, I, I think if I can speak first on this one, that that you've identified it in what you've said, mm. right? That 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 by and large, institutions, whether they're journalistic institutions or legal institutions or scientific institutions, have have penetrated so deeply that 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 popular judgment is disabled. And more than disabled, it's it's absent. It's not even missed, right? There isn't even, you know, what George Grant once called an intimation of deprival, uh, a feeling that I ought to be able to form an opinion, that my common sense ought to tell me something about this uh, this reality that is is presented suddenly, right? That this disease is. Is present, but we don't know what it is. We don't know how. We don't know anything about it, and yet we all, we all gladly stampede in the direction indicated, before any real uh, knowledge of what it is, uh, where it came from, I mean, which is all still contested, obviously. But before it was even known, the stampede was in progress, and the stampede was so effective. That by the time it began to, information began to become available. For one, for example, knew, knew within six months the actual infection mortality rate, which was a little bit north of of a bad flu epidemic. Mm -hmm. it, it wasn't of it wasn't of interest. It was never reported. Um, so I think, I think. Jens, I would just agree with what you have hinted at, right? That this this is an apocalyptic, in the sense of revelatory extremity that we find ourselves at, right? It's it's a sign yeah. of the times, uh, and it uh, a a very complacent population, yes. uh, which doesn't trust or form its own judgments and a, a revolting i don't i didn't mean to make say it that way uh a, a, a disaffected population which is not getting much counsel or formation mm -hmm. uh, i mean as in my example of, of what the role the cbc ought to have played in relation to the freedom convoy but didn't right so people are pushed farther into their positions, and um, yes, it's a very it's a very bad and worrying situation. There was almost a sense in certain conversations I had with certain people that you ought not think for yourself, and with the ascendancy of experts, um, it's almost dangerous or presumptuous for you to think that you might think for yourself. Um, who are you? You're not a doctor. You should not have an opinion on this. Who are you? You're not a climate scientist. Who are you to have an opinion on this? 
And that was a very interesting feature of this whole COVID thing as well, is in certain circles, it was almost dangerous to think on your own and to presume that even as an educated person who knows how to go to primary sources or to read statistics, that you should pontificate on what might be going on. Like you just mentioned, David, the stats early on, we knew that this was dangerous for a very small portion of the population and that probably our response to it was going to have collateral damage. You didn't have to be a scientist to understand this was going to have massive ramifications on young people, as we're seeing now at the university level with anxiety and depression and other um, ills that they're suffering because of what we did to them. I mean, uh, we, you know, so that it was a very, very, I'm still baffled as to the why. And there's a big part of me which wants to get back to why did the media, like, what is going on? Is there something bigger going on? Or is this just a confluence of minor sociological factors? So let me just add to this, and maybe then we can get our three experts here to respond. Um, so I grew up in Germany under the shadow of one of the then still living communist regimes, right? East Germany. And all of this, I hate to say it, has exactly the whiff of this sort of censored, regulated media machine where you always have two realities. You find your own reality on the ground, and you talk about this with your friends and so on, right? Mm -hmm. But you already know that that's a reality that's not allowed, and it will be contested by the official media narrative, which comes from the state, which is organized by the state, which is censored by the state. Um, and anyone who has experienced that kind of a thing, uh, then you, you normally ask, okay, so who's the censor? There's got to be a censor. There's got to be some orchestrated censorship. Uh, that then money is put behind or some kind of power is put behind in order to uh, push media uh, to, to disseminate that rather than what they might find themselves on journalistic investigation and so on. So I'm just, I'm asking the three of you, like, is there any validity to this kind of assumption? Like, uh, is there money being paid out to control the narrative? Um, you know, and I know immediately already now the self-censoring little voice in my head goes on, oh, yes, that's conspiracy theory. But I think that's just another one of these kind of censorship terms that's supposed to keep you from actually looking that way. Anyway, I'll love to well, hear what you say. I want to uh, kind of wrap up the previous point a bit. David talked about the stampede, and Bernays also talks about the stampede. So why do we... Authority, why do we just go along in a herd? Because mm -hmm. that is the nature of how people are. Mm -hmm. And what Bernays said is that the group mind does not think in the strict sense of the word. In place of thoughts, it has impulses, habits, and emotions. In making up its mind, its first impulse is usually to follow the example of a trusted leader. This is one of the most firmly established principles of mass psychology. But when the example of the leader is not at hand, and the herd must think for itself, it does so by means of cliches, pat words, or images, which stand for a whole group of ideas or experiences. Not many years ago, it was only necessary to tag a political candidate with the word interests to stampede millions of people into voting against him, because anything associated with the interest yeah. seemed necessarily corrupt. By playing on an old cliche or manipulating a new one, the propagandist can sometimes swing a whole mass of group emotions. So individually and corporately, we don't make decisions rationally. We make them emotionally, and then we justify them rationally. So that's what's going on. And it's not entirely bad if the church is looking to civic authority in some senses, because 
civic authority is something that directly or indirectly God established. The problem is when that civic authority is in rebellion to basic humanity, uh, morals, ethics, principles, the public interest, everything they're supposed to be. And that's where we need to have the recognition. Uh, one of the things Neil Postman talked about uh, before his death, oh, maybe 30 years ago, he said that uh, if you extend Marshall McLuhan's thought that the medium is the message, when you had print media, it was less prone to manipulation because it was the written word and it was very rational in its nature. Our mediums today are completely geared to emotion. Audio, visual, mediums geared to emotion. And so all of these cliches uh, affect us in ways we don't realize. Mm -hmm. uh, and so some of these cues are very subtle. And so I think that when it comes to this censorship thing, um, I think we do need to recognize that there are circles of power for which democracy is just a speed bump. And that they're not thinking about, oh, the way that society should be, the way that society, they're just thinking of gaining power. Mm. And so if we look at Psalm 2, it says that there is a world conspiracy, that uh, the rulers of the world have banded together against the Lord and against his anointed one. They want to throw off the shackles of Christianity. And that, that effort has always uh, been growing, and it's what the devil has wanted to do. Whereas the church works in the light, he works in the shadows. And so we have other networks, um, financial networks, uh, corporate um, corporate boards, and um, just a confluence of things. And even, hey, secret societies, they do exist, they always have. And what role they play, we don't know, because their workings are opaque to us. Mm -hmm. Very well said. Uh, uh, let me mention something that, uh, who's paying them? The money does ha talk. Uh, I can give an example of an editor I became friends with here in Surrey. Their biggest advertiser was is a corporation, and they didn't like a story that referenced them. They demanded it be changed or re taken off the the internet if they still wanted to get their advertising dollars. The Trudeau government has earmarked more than a billion dollars towards media outlets across Canada over four years. I met a, a journalist in the Kootenays of British Columbia who had been at uh, just a small town newspaper for goodness 20 years or something, a long time. And then he went off doing his own thing, but he would freelance by giving them content every week or so on. And all of a sudden, they while well, they were part of this, uh, one of the initiatives that the government set up where they paid for a reporter for a year's salary. And he would submit something that might be critical of the government's approach to lockdowns or vaccines or whatever it was, all of a sudden, for the first time in two decades, his stuff was not getting printed. And we're talking about what can we do to maybe bring back David's point about the good old days. I've been arguing that we should stop that money flow to our, to our media sources and the ones that aren't getting any of the money, they're going to survive because they're the ones that are having to find ways to make sure they still have customers. But the ones that don't have any accountability and don't need to be accountable, 
because they're getting funded by the government or getting money from the government, they can keep doing whatever they want without having to answer to it, even if readers, viewers, subscribers go somewhere else. And, you know, I also will mention one other point here is we are now in the social media era. If you have a Facebook account or Twitter or signal groups or whatever, my guess is we all have followers or follow other people that now think like us. And we become this, this tribal, uh, th there's been a tribal approach to everything. So my example is 25 years ago when they came out with the North American Free Trade Agreement, you know, me and Ivan might talk about it and I'm in favor of it because I've done my, I've read McLean's magazine or listened to, you know, Bill Good or whatever and came up with my, and you've done the same thing, but some other resources. We have a beer and talk about it for half an hour and not change our positions, but get why you support it or I don't. Today's conversation will be, Ivan, how can you support that? And you would say, what what is your problem? Like they just renegotiated this for for the good of our country. How can you not support it? And then I say F you, you say F you, and then we don't talk to each other anymore. And this is much how our conversations have gone because we're only getting fed the 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 news and the information that we want. And there's the media is out there to provide that for us. So this is part of the problem, I think, in a bigger circle. Mm -hmm. So what should our churches do um, when they are facing? Or already I see a new crisis that is being foisted upon us. It's the climate crisis. And uh, once again, I think we are only hearing one voice <clears throat> uh, being produced. So the purpose of this uh, podcast is to empower our listeners to become better when the next narrative is singular narrative is foisted upon them. So what is your advice to people in this situation? How should they purview the news so that they don't fall victim and are not manipulated and coerced by the media? And I might just say here uh, for Lee, I know Lee has limited time today that will wrap up. David. Oh, sorry, it's David. Um, that will wrap this segment up uh, with this question. And then, David, if you need to go, you can. And then we can decide whether we pick up and talk a little more. But, uh, yeah, go ahead with Ivan's question there. Well, I mean, this is this is relatively obvious. But I meet very few people who consult a variety of media. Right? I, I'm unusual in my habits. Mm reading the Globe and Mail and the Epoch Times. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think, <laughs> I, I don't really know that there's any way out of that or around that if you don't, if you only consult one source, you know, setting aside my fantasy of a CBC, which provides a variety of sources, <laughs> um, then you, you have to do it for yourself or else. Well, of course, one of the problems. Epoch, God bless the. I say, God bless the Epoch Times that it's there and is, mm -hmm. you know, absolutely. I am getting different news, completely different news, from different sources now. It's it's like not the same world. Totally. 
David, David, before we let you go, I just one question from your opening comments. You had mentioned that um, all of the scientists or medical professionals who are being interviewed by, I think it was, was it CBC? Were being yeah. funded. How do you interpret that? Like, how does that happen? That um, it sounds like people are being bribed to speak a particular way and those who had a different opinion are being censored. Yeah, so the diverse sources, right, that we all want seem to be offset or countered by some kind of a Gleichschaltung, you know, like some kind of uh, uh, conformism through monetary incentives, let's yeah, say. Like, who's behind that? Uh, I, I know question, listeners are going to be wondering, like, what was, what's your take on that? Well, I mean, that was Rodney Palmer's, uh, God bless him, research. Okay. Uh, that that there were, he could find no one consulted by the CBC during the pandemic who was not uh, a recipient of grants. And I hope I'm giving the correct name of this federal program. I think it's called Science Up First. Mm-hmm. Uh, and without exception, that was his testimony. Hmm. His testimony was excellent to the yeah, National Science I listened, yeah. So I think it's just a fact of the matter. Okay. And it goes, I mean, it goes across the board, right? That, And I think the sense of emergency determines everything now, right? Mm. There isn't time to talk. Right. right? There's not, the seas are boiling, Kelowna's on fire, Yellowknife's on fire. Um, There isn't time to talk. There's only time to act. And that goes also to Jeff's point, Dan, about the formation of, of young journalists, right? They're not, they're not formed as journalists. There isn't really time for journalism. It's an emergency. If we don't act now, and this is the attitude, and I, so I think that there's a question of faith here. I, I don't know what else to call it but faith, to say no. We no, <laughs> there is time, yeah. right? Yeah. We we've been given this time. We need to talk. We need to understand uh, the the nature of things. What kind of world this is, and what and what we ought to do in it. And we cannot be stand endlessly uh, driven by emergency. Uh, the, the emergency tells us who our enemies are, and and the, then the enemies are uh, busy trying to deconstruct, you know, the, the whole fallacious structure. Um, need there needs to be a place like this uh, where these things can be considered, taken apart, um, and I don't I don't think there's any alternative to that. Um, but to settle down, mm-hmm. to stop and look and listen and talk to one another. That's fantastic. It reminds me that C.S. Lewis has this wonderful essay about um, studying in wartime. Learning in wartime. Yeah, learning in wartime. And his main point there, he's addressing a group of young Cambridge students, and he says, how is it possible that as bombs are dropping all around our country, and as our countrymen are at war, and their wives are home alone, how is it that you can come and study at a university like this? What is the justification? And he says, the truth is, we're always at war. And the war is far deeper and more consequential than the bombs that are falling 
our struggle is not ultimately against flesh and blood, but against the powers and principalities of this dark world. We're always at war. We're always in an emergency situation. So Christian, take a deep breath. Be thoughtful. Don't forget to pray and read widely. Yeah, and I mean, be alert. Do not allow to, to cite, you know, Georgia Agamben or Carl Schmidt, whatever the case may be. Do not allow somebody else to, to define for you the state of exception, which then controls the narrative, right, as David said, and then calls for only actions and no reflection, and on that ground then prohibits dialogue, prohibits the kind of conversational tone we need to mm-hmm. counter and to think. Because then you're looking for a political messiah, that's and, that's, right. and that's the whole game, I think. You create emergency and crisis so that then the political messiah shows up and we don't think we only need to act as we're told. Right? That's part of, that's right. part of the problem. Yeah. Well, and there you go back to the Psalms with Lee. You know, do, not Psalm 2, but another Psalm. Do not trust in horses. Don't trust in chariots. Ultimately, our hope is in the Lord our God. Right. So, Lee and um, <clears throat> Jeff, any, any advice from you all to the church about analyzing the media <laughs> yeah i guess well, we're both uh we're both at a conundrum in a sense here aren't we lee I, I think discernment really starts with knowing god and knowing the truth and the closer we get to the truth the more we know the truth the more we can recognize a lie mm. um the more that we're open to the lord speaking to us um that we're not we don't hold our convictions uh lightly uh, so that in a way they have both strength and flexibility, so that if the Lord tells us, um, you know, you're wrong in this issue, and, and you feel that check inside of you, and you start to explore, well, well, how so, and then search it through, you can come to a different conclusion. So I think uh, more humility and more of a love for truth is the foundation of it. And uh, the rest can follow from there if you can get access to the right information. And I still find you have to look harder for it than you did before in some ways. In some ways, the Internet has still facilitated it. But um, after Donald Trump came to power, the the other side, if you want to call it that, uh, had to regroup. And that was when the Internet suppression really took hold. And so the golden age of the Internet is over. But... If you look hard enough, you can still find this stuff. They don't yet quite have the AI that will prevent you from even looking it up in the first place or ever finding it. So if you seek the truth, you will find it. Seek and you will find. That's an eternal truth. And then this final question, are we seeing a similar thing happening with the climate uh, discussion as we have seen with the COVID discussion, that there is one allowable narrative and those who question are going to be censored. From your angle as journalists, are we seeing the playbook replayed? I would like to, to speak to that one because I don't think the the climate change discussion, you'll pardon the euphemism, uh, isn't just <laughs> after COVID, it's before COVID. It's for me the primary explanation of why there could be no discussion of COVID, right? Because there already was a feeling, a, a pan, a feeling of panic, a feeling of emergency, a feeling of doom wow. in the air, hmm. uh, and and there was already a move of, I mean, the Trusted News Initiative, which Lee brought into the picture was created before the pandemic 
to deal with vaccine disinformation. Oh. It wasn't created during the pandemic to deal with it. What? It was before. That was already on, for whatever reason, it was on the agenda already. And I think the, the climate change is the same. I mean, I, I read in the, the, the paper the other day that... Um, Climate change explains why fire, forest fires now move so quickly, not the wind. No, yeah, it's climate change that explains. I mean, it's 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 kind of nutty. Well, yeah. uh, and all the people who used to explain patiently to me the difference between climate and weather now seem to have lost the plot on the difference between climate and weather. Yeah, um, and so. You know, to, yeah, I'm sorry. It's um, it's pretty exasperating. But mm -hmm. yes, I think there, these two are functionally equivalent, and to deal, they cannot be dealt with without dealing with the question: What is science, and how is it to be practiced, right. and what is it to mean to people, right? Uh, and how how is science related to uh, practical judgment? Uh, does it settle every question decisively? Does it have an opinion? Is it even science if if dissident opinions can't be entered within the scientific community? All these all these questions now become extraordinarily urgent. Mm -hmm. uh, and and I, they don't seem to be getting any any purchase that I can see. So, David, does that mean you would recommend, um, because we haven't heard your voice yet on the recommendation to the church, uh, that the church include that in its formation, like to answer or to re-educate itself on some of these questions? Yes. I, I, I think, uh, and I bet you agree. I would agree. I just want to hear it from you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think I strongly feel that that's exactly what should be discussed. Because, I mean, there's always a sense within the community that just to follow Jesus and to read the Bible more closely, uh, that is enough. Um, and again, I guess it's part of this sort of dualistic lens rather than understanding that the very concepts you take for granted need to be unrolled again, unfolded, and, and carefully defined so you're not misled. Yes, if, if, if one of the fruits of this, all this, would be the understanding that there is only one world, not two, uh, not a world referred to by religion and uh, the, the world we live in, yeah, that would be a great outcome. I think I think in in line with this, we need to buffet our doctrine of sin in the church. People are gullible. This idea of Psalm two that the nations rage and that they do conspire together against the Lord and against His anointed one is fantastical to most people in the pew in the Western world. Things have been so good for so long. We've been able to trust our authorities that we think would they conspire? Would they really do something against the citizens? Aren't they always working in our best interest? And so when we talk about yeah, and when we talk about energy policy or anything else, yes. Uh, the um, I think oh, that's yeah. a profound point, Ed. Mm -hmm. That that it, it I, I I mean I would speak just even personally, right? That it it is it is hard to take in. Mm -hmm. 
the the evil that we're seeing. Yeah, it is. It's the, hard uh, to take it in, and it, I think that does reflect our times and the the easy road that many of us have walked. Yeah, yeah. Till now, I think one of the things that the church needs to uh, really emphasize is the importance of free speech. Because I think that's one of the things that's being lost. I think it was Lee that mentioned that somewhere along the line, free speech became uh, lost. The value of free speech became lost. And if we lose that, then that will be, that'll create the domino effect and probably already has to where we have gotten uh, right now. And I just want to point out the importance of free speech and how it is even honored in the Bible because as Curtis piped up, did God really say, which is, uh, which is what happens in Genesis chapter 3 with the fall where the serpent comes and lies about God, about his character, about his nature, about his commandment and so forth. But the amazing thing is the Bible allows the serpent to speak, uh, to have that opinion. Uh, the God or the Bible does not cancel the snake or, or censor his words. And so there you have it, right? In the first, right at the beginning of the Bible, you have um, a free speech. God created the, the mouth and, um, and therefore has made it free. And there we have the exercise of the serpent using his voice to malign uh, the deity, the supreme being, and the supreme being allowing it. That is, I think, significant. Well, and he comes as an icon of wisdom uh, and of healing. The serpent in the ancient Near East was not a portrait of something sinister. It was a portrait of something that could bring healing and was the epitome of wisdom, which is why the pharaoh would wear uh, the snake, had lots of purchase within Egypt and so forth. So that's important to say as well. But anyways, we really do need to wrap things up here. So uh, if there's any final comments, no. So... Um, just a super big thank you to all of our guests, uh, David, Lee, Jeff. Thank you so much for coming. It's been a delight to have you. This discussion could go on and on. I feel, as I often do in this podcast, that we've only touched the tip of the top of the surface. Um, but we can have these discussions. I encourage our listeners, have continue this discussion in smaller groups of people. Uh, exercise your minds, ask the hard questions, be okay in that liminal space where you may not have the answer, but you're still asking the good questions. We need to uh, be critical thinkers in our day and be willing to ask these sorts of things. So thank you once again to our guests and uh, bless each of you who are listening as you continue to walk in faithfulness to our Lord. The Lord be with you.